The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. I assume you have further scrutinized my blood? I certainly have, Mr. Johnson. There are several hundred questions I'd like to ask you. That desire was predictable. How many answers you will receive is not predictable. Have you spoken of this to anyone? No one. I, I feel it's best to keep it an absolute secret. An excellent feeling. What can you tell me that I do not know? I can tell you this. Your blood is unlike any I've studied in my entire career. In what way? Well, in the first place, no man on earth should be able to live with as low a count of red corpuscles as you have. You're not surprised? No. In the second place, your blood is behaving in an impossible manner. The agglutinin is breaking down, destroying the basic structure of the blood itself. The result is evaporating blood. Well, that's an oversimplification. Blood within the veins couldn't possibly evaporate. The more precise term... Evaporation as a term will suffice. Can you name a cause? Not yet. But you think you may? I may. I'm already neglecting other work to devote time to this problem. We're already facing AIDS. God forbid another dreadful new plague should strike the earth. Yes. God forbid. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, April the 9th, 2020. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Help! I'm currently living under a police state. And like all police states, it is supported by a significant portion of the population, if not by a majority. And that scares me more than any coronavirus pandemic. So let's be clear about something from the outset. There are two distinct and separate issues confronting us. Two separate crises, if you will. And they should not be confused with or conflated with each other, even though they overlap. And the first is how to deal with and defeat the COVID-19 disease. And when it comes to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, I am self-isolating. I am social distancing. In fact, I think I was doing that before there was even a pandemic. But now that it's the law, I think it's a law that should not even exist. A law that when acted upon is no different in principle or practice than with what was happening in China in its reaction to the pandemic. And that brings us to our second crisis, and by far the most critical one. What to do about our supposedly limited governments exercising unlimited powers over circumstances that even given their own worst-case projections, do not justify their actions. So God forbid another plague should strike the earth, and yet it has. It has taken the form of a political plague, driven by an emotional plague, not unlike the one called by that very same name in Willem Reich's pre-war study, The Mass Psychology of Fascism. And as with Germany heading into the last war, fascism is indeed once again the political response to the emotional plague gripping a great number of people. And sadly, these are the people who support all the shutdowns and the fascist laws. Police and other authorities are already responding to calls from so-called snitch lines, where members of the public are offered a direct means of participating in the enforcing of the police state by reporting cases of individuals standing too close to each other, 
Now, I find that personally unconscionable and immoral, and yet people are doing it. Meanwhile, the corporate and the mainstream media continues in a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute obsession with any and all stories that could possibly be tied to what is being called coronavirus and COVID-19, although the correct name for the virus is SARS-CoV-2, while COVID-19 is the disease that can sometimes arise in people coming in contact with the virus itself. And that distinction, as we learned last week, is critical. Yet it is being intentionally avoided in the myriad of statistical updates we get on COVID-19. So as I suggested last week, the conversation's about to change. As we will discover right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links and our archive broadcasts. And as always, consider offering your financial support to our efforts. Everyone who donates $25 or more will get a copy of the 52-page full-color publication, Climate Essentials, written by one of our regular guests, Dave Plum. And as anyone who heard last week's show already knows, I'm no fan of this current and unprecedented state-imposed shutdown of all social life and the economy, and I do not think it is necessary. Our show last week focused on all the lies, damn lies, and statistics about COVID-19 that were in circulation. And after the first two crucial weeks of a state-imposed lockdown passed, we entered a second two-crucial-week period, which we're in the middle of now, with promises of more two-week crucial periods ahead of us, as everyone waits to see if the anticipated statistical predictions regarding COVID-19 actually come to pass. First, we were faced with a coronavirus health pandemic. Bad enough, you might think. But no, then the world governments created a second crisis by shutting down their economies and precipitating an unemployment pandemic and a financial pandemic. Now it appears that they did this based on another crisis, a serious COVID-19 statistics crisis, which may in the end be the one most responsible for precipitating all the fear and panic concerning the first two crises. An increasing number of analysts have been calling into question the validity of COVID-19 projections based on extrapolations of very dubious data samplings. There's also evidence surfacing that the statistics are being manipulated to present a false picture of the situation. And this is what I've been suspecting for quite a long time because it just never looked right from the very beginning. For example, there's a huge difference between measuring cases of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and measuring the number of people suffering from the COVID-19 disease. Yet our governments have intentionally decided to treat each of these very distinct concepts as being identical. Consequently, it's becoming increasingly recognized that the stats cited in the government's daily COVID-19 updates may not be statistically valid. And as I stressed last week, statistics are, after all, merely measurements of those things that we choose to measure. They are only valid after the fact, so to speak, and only if they reflect the facts. And the bottom line here is statistics are a breeding ground for the journalistic virus of false news. In the end, the coronavirus will run its course, regardless of what politicians and governments choose to do. And how do I know that? 
Well, because that's what our politicians, our governments, and healthcare officials themselves have been saying. And if that's so, then all of these state prohibitions on freedom of association are a complete waste of time and unnecessary that will only create further crises. Social distancing does not require a police state, yet that's the approach that continues to escalate. And why are they doing it? To flatten a curve, a curve that contains the very same COVID-19 numbers as it does when flattened. You see, you're not getting away from the numbers here. They're just spreading them out. And alarmingly, the only justification for this total economic shutdown concerns an attempt to slow the virus, not to stop it other than by letting it run its natural course until vaccines are available at some future time. The potential social, political, and economic pandemic that awaits us after this coronavirus scare subsides will dwarf any current coronavirus fears, and you don't need a statistical analysis to figure out why. What really requires accurate statistical measurement is the level of government incompetence that is ultimately responsible for this entire situation from start to end. And sure enough, on the very day of our own broadcast last Thursday, Ontario Premier Doug Ford dramatically announced that on the following day, the Friday, he would release some very disturbing facts and statistics about COVID-19. Well, talk about a coincidence, I thought to myself. I wonder how close his projections will be compared to my own worst-case projection that I had made just the day before. And for the American numbers, you'll recall, I simply used Michael Osterholm's conservative projection of 480,000 deaths nationwide. And by using that same ratio applied to the Canadian population, I projected about 56,000 deaths nationally. So what did the province of Ontario come up with? Quote-unquote, grim projections, if we stay the course, between 3,000 and 15,000 could die in Ontario. If we had done nothing, the death toll could have reached 100,000, end quote. Of course, that's a complete make-believe narrative, one that I'll be dissecting near the end of the show today. But not long after the release of Ontario's projections last Friday, Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever sent me the following, quote, I've attached what was supposed to be a shocking report, according to Doug Ford. I've only glanced at it so far, but already it looks like utter garbage. It appears to be modeling based upon cases, but cases are sickies who came to the healthcare system feeling ill and meeting the criteria to be eligible for coronavirus testing, which is only a tiny percentage of all Ontarians. And it's a highly skewed sample, given that not everyone who gets the virus gets sick. Then they play, according to the reportage, the this is how many would have died if we didn't close your business and send you to the poorhouse card, which is absolute garbage. There's no data for would-haves. It's completely unscientific. I'm beside myself again, physically moved to the point of near nausea that such utterly stupid and immoral people are the ones telling an even more stupid sock puppet of a premier what he will do. Looks like I'm blogging again tomorrow, <laughs> he says. And blog he did. Paul has been keeping an up-to-date account of just how badly the government is manipulating and misrepresenting the raw statistical material on both SARS-CoV-2 and on COVID-19. And to quote from his April 4th Facebook post, quote, The economy is being deliberately killed bit by bit by government policy. On March 23rd, Ontario's Premier announced that all non-essential workplaces must close on March 24th at midnight. On March 31st, he announced that the shutdown will continue for at least two more weeks. 
Billions are being lost. Many businesses and jobs will never return. Some very ignorant and immoral voices, including federal conservative Rona Ambrose, have been calling for the federal government to exercise emergency powers, making the prime minister roughly the equivalent of, say, a Cuban dictator. The current policy of sustained, if allowed to go on for months, will cause more and more lasting damage and loss to more people than the coronavirus. Any semblance of responsibility with respect to the buying power of your nation's currency is being thrown out the window, along with the renters and homeowners who have been forced out of business or employment by government's mandatory economic shutdown. Fascists, notably in Ontario, Canada, are promising that everything's on the table in terms of passing new laws, regardless of the extent to which they violate your rights of life, liberty, and property. The descent into totalitarianism is happening at breakneck speed and with high levels of public approval. We are witnessing an historical fact. Countries are not murdered, they commit suicide. Meanwhile, Canada's Trudeau government is singing the praises of globalism and telling us that no country is an island. It's almost ha, as though they were trying to bankrupt the countries of the world, end quote. Gee, you think? From his April 6 Fox News commentary, here's yet more evidence of the changing conversation as Steve Hilton calls for flattening the curve, not the economy. Let's get to the point. You know how I feel. Two weeks ago, I said we needed to flatten the curve, not the economy. I warned that the cure could be worse than the disease because poverty kills, despair kills. Of course, the virus is deadly, but so is this shutdown. You just won't see its victims in a neat little box on cable news. We need to honour the victims of the virus and families who've lost loved ones. It is totally wrong for anyone to dismiss or minimise the pain and suffering from the coronavirus pandemic or to ignore the federal or state guidelines. But it's just as wrong to dismiss or minimise the pain and suffering from the coronavirus shutdown. Well, we have tried to capture that toll in a neat little box on cable news. Already confirmed, at least 9.9 million Americans have lost their job. That doesn't even include the self-employed. The trillions in rescue money, that'll have to be paid for at some point. If you divide the current total between every taxpayer, it's an average of $45,000. Of course, it'll be much more. The current package will only last a few weeks. Hundreds of thousands of businesses going under, many more in September and October, when the real crunch comes. More on that in a moment. Then, the projected toll. Based on what happened in the Great Recession and Great Depression, although this shutdown is looking like it will be worse than both of those combined. A mental health crisis in America, mass poverty, which inexorably leads to lower life expectancy. Past experience predicts that more human life will be lost from a prolonged shutdown than the models predict will be lost from this virus. Those models were presented to the President last Sunday and all of us on Tuesday. They're the reason the shutdown was extended to the 30th of April. What they didn't tell you was this from the man who created one of the main models. That our models assume that the social distancing stays in place right through the end of May uh, to get the trajectory that we see. And, it, you know, we, we hope that that, uh, you know, could be as few as 80,000 deaths or even less. They said the shutdown will last until April the 30th, but it seems like it's actually June the 1st, at least. Since these models are driving one of the most significant policy decisions in the history of this country, it's reasonable to investigate them. The 2.2 million death toll 
that was on a chart in the White House briefing room. It came from Imperial College London, but it's been debunked by some public health experts. Here's Stanford epidemiologist Dr. John Yanidis. We have more complete information about that denominator suggests that the infection fatality rate is much, much lower than 3.4%. It is actually probably much lower compared to the 0.9% that is the main uh, figure that went into some influential calculations by a wonderful team of researchers in Imperial College, uh, which uh, uh, probably overestimated the, the exact infection uh, fatality risk. The projection of 100,000 to 240,000 deaths, even with a total national shutdown lasting until at least June the 1st, the factors that went into that calculation include data from Italy, which has also been questioned by epidemiologists. Here's Dr. Yanidis again. It would not be surprising if in some locations in Lombardy uh, we have currently reached uh, infection rates of uh, 20 or even 30 percent, but this is still a bit speculative. If that's the case, then you need to correct the uh, infection fatality rate or case fatality rate for Italy that seems to be very high by a very large factor. It could be a correction of 100, for example, that needs to be applied. But okay, let's ignore the public health experts questioning the data and take the projections at face value. Even the worst case scenario presented last week will be dwarfed by the long-term human toll of this shutdown. More human life across a much broader range will be lost. In the UK, the government is modeling the health impact of the shutdown as well as the virus. Our government should do that here. And be clear, the public health experts are saying that when the shutdown is lifted, the virus will come back. So if shutdown remains the only policy, we would need many more of them for at least another year. The public health experts tell us the shutdown is annoying and inconvenient, but we just have to accept it. If you lose your job and your family's relying on it for a roof over their head, that's not annoying, it's terrifying. If your business collapses after you've put your life into it and secured your home against it, that's not inconvenient. It's a disaster from which you may never recover. If we truly want to save lives, all lives, then we need to do two things. Slow the spread, but speed the shutdown. It must end as soon as safely possible. But that means we need a better antivirus policy than we have right now. Last week I said, open where possible, closed where necessary. Shutdowns do slow the spread. Look at the difference between the Bay Area, which had the nation's first stay-at-home orders, and New York City. So, right now, in the absence of a better antivirus policy, it is necessary to shut things down everywhere. That includes Utah, Wyoming, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Nebraska, North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, South Carolina, where there are no statewide stay-at-home orders tonight. I'm asking those governors, including a great friend of this show, Iowa's Kim Reynolds, to put in place a stay-at-home order at least for the duration of President Trump's slow-the-spread guidelines. Of course, that will take a high toll in these states and on our country. And there it is jobs, businesses, livelihoods, and lives. 
Remember, this is not a choice between public health and the economy, between lives and money. The shutdown costs lives too. We can see that the president and his team are totally focused on winning the war against the invisible enemy, the coronavirus. In the Middle East, we got bogged down in endless wars because no one knew what the objective was or had a realistic plan for achieving it. With the coronavirus, it should be clear, it is not realistic or achievable to say no one should ever get infected. The goal should be to stop our hospitals becoming overwhelmed. So the immediate task is to slow the spread and surge our capacity. The extra ICU beds, the ventilators, the PPE, that is happening. That is today's battle, but it's not how we win the war and neither is shutdown. Because when you lift the shutdown, the virus comes back. The American people will not put up much longer being told there is no alternative. They want to know their leaders are working on a more sustainable antivirus policy. They understand we need to slow the spread, but what they also want to see is a plan for speeding up the shutdown. Did you catch that? A glaring contradiction right in the middle of an otherwise consistent and rational argument. After making it abundantly clear that shutdowns cost more lives than the coronavirus, Steve Hilton is asking governors to put in place a stay-home order in those states where the state governments have opted for a voluntary compliance instead of forced compliance. Of course, that will take a high toll, business, jobs, and livelihoods, he says. Well, doesn't that totally negate the rest of his argument? Did, did he not see that contradiction? Personally, I think the forced shutdown should end immediately for the very reasons he suggested and the rest of his commentary was excellent. And the reason is so that we can save both lives and our future. Bill T., one of our listeners who lives out on the west coast of Canada, put me on to the following editorial, and about which Robert Vaughn commented to me, quote, is perhaps the best article on the subject I have read yet, end quote. And I feel pretty much the same way about it, particularly in how it is a great summary of my own big picture view on the whole COVID-19 pandemic, and for that reason I want to read it as much as I can in, in its entirety. And it is written by Anthony Mueller from Medium.com on April 2nd, 2020. And the headline reads, How gullible politicians promoted the destruction of the global economy and threw us into the abyss of serfdom. And I quote, Anyone with some basic knowledge in mathematical modeling who had taken a look at the structure of the Imperial College model would have noted the faults of this approach and its exaggerations. The model's prognosis that the United Kingdom would have to count with more than half a million deaths and a complete overload of its healthcare system reversed the British government's earlier decision to use prudential surveillance and specifically targeted intervention and to shift the full control strategy, which required massive intervention into the public and private life of the nation. The leaders of other countries that were somewhat still in doubt jumped on the bandwagon and the march into a tyrannical state was programmed. It was too late when the authors of the model finally revised their original estimate from 500,000 to 20,000 and later on lowered even that number more. The governments had already set into motion their emergency plans. After declaring the coronavirus a pandemic by the World Health Organization, agendas that had been prepared years ago were set into motion, and the state agencies followed the procedures that were prescribed by the international health regulations as the international legal instrument that is binding on 196 countries across the globe, including all the member states of WHO. 
even now, months after the outbreak of the virus, the true size of the threat remains unclear. The quantitative basis is still too small to make a reliable projection. If the modelers and the responsible government bodies had looked at the basic numbers instead of elaborating an apparently sophisticated model, they would have noticed that there has been no noticeable rise in the death rate. A look at the overall death statistics shows flat lines with fluctuations within its natural range. Even in Italy, there has not yet been a higher number of deaths than usual in the past couple of months. In absolute numbers, the death count is actually slightly down because of the seasonal factor that wintertime is over. The point to note is that there has been an increased mortality rate in specific areas of Italy, yet in relative terms the heightened frequency of deaths is not strong enough to show up in the national stats. The epicenter of the virus outbreak in Italy is concentrated in its northern part and there in specific cities. The overall reported death toll of COVID-19 does not appear in a significant measure beyond earlier peaks. And by the way, he cites European Mortality Bulletin Week 12, 2020. What makes the coronavirus crisis special is not the number of deaths, but the reaction to the outbreak. Out of fear that the epidemic would get out of control and that the healthcare systems would be overfraught with cases, governments in Europe and the United States and in many other countries implanted measures to ward off the spread of coronavirus. The amazing thing with the reaction is how in unison this was done and how drastic the measures are. When the WHO triggered the alarm bell, governments that had treaties in place to act according to pre-established plans in the case of declared pandemic virtually locked up large parts of the population of the whole countries and brought their economies to a standstill. As a consequence, many people suffer from paranoia because of the existential fears that come when economically active people see the source of their incomes vanish and the elderly have to watch how the savings in their pension accounts melt down or when getting sick are put away to eventually die alone in a hospital because even visits of their close relatives are prohibited. If there had been no media hype about the coronavirus and if the governments had not resorted to drastic measures in foolish obeyance and submission to the commands by the World Health Organization, hardly anyone beyond some specialists probably would have even noticed the coronavirus. Mutations of viruses happen all of the time, and most of them do not do more harm than the influenza virus. The family of coronavirus is very large, and its existence has been known since the 1960s. Bound by their international legal obligations and confronted with a media hype, governments began to implement even harsher measures to contain the virus and to flatten the curve of its dissemination. The media helped to create a reality of its own, as Niklas Luhmann had shown in his sociological studies with the difference between the imagined reality of the media and the reality of life. Governments succumbed to the World Health Organization, were brought under the spell of the public hysteria, and fell hostage to the medical-industrial complex, whose political arm is the WHO, and which rapidly has assumed a role to act as a kind of a world government. In order to justify their draconian measurements, governments claim that their policy is about saving lives. Yet there's no way to save lives for good. The best we can do is gain a little more time to live and avoid an early death. Therefore, the question is not whether to save lives or not, but by which measures we will gain more years or may lose time to live. When we close down the economy, those who thereby avoid contagion will gain a few more years. On the other hand, because of the shutdown, Millions of people will lose many years of their lifetime. Make your choice. 
Not the coronavirus will ruin us, but the coming recession. And if the recession does not ruin us, the hyperinflation combined with a depression will do. It is as if the tower had given the command to the pilot to turn off the engines of the airplane in midair because of the presumption that there might be some unknown danger at the destination airport. We do not know whether the number of infected will decrease because of the measures that are in place now, but we can be certain that the number of suicides, divorces, alcoholics, indebted, impoverished, and bankrupt persons will increase. In a historical perspective, we are currently not experiencing anything new or unusual, and the general human hysteria is nothing other than what has been experienced many times in history. But this should not make us complacent. The hype of public opinion creates a mass psychosis that brings down the fools and wise equally. Politics always wins. When this panic is over, as the rate of contagion slows down and the death toll does no longer rise, Governments will claim that this is so because of their measures, even when, in fact, these were unnecessary from the beginning and the infection rate would have fallen anyway. What's going on? Not a deadly disease is the threat, but the global hysteria. If the panic should continue, millions will die. Not from COVID-19, but from the economic breakdown. The panic has no basis in the facts. There are emergencies, but they are locally concentrated, such as in specific cities in a specific region of Italy. More than a quarter of the world has opted to lock in their populations and shut down their economies among the many European countries, the United States, Canada, and Australia. While this may slow down the spread of the contagion, it will bring down our capacity to deal with our other needs, including the provision of medicine. No one knows for sure how deadly the coronavirus really is. The perceived path of contagion is a projection. This will also be the case with a future appearance of new viruses and their modification. Sooner or later, when COVID-19 is over, COVID-20 will show up and thereafter COVID-21 will come. Our wants are always manifold and therefore require a trade-off. The idea of saving lives as an absolute good is absurd and can only gain such prominence in a society that has lost its touch with the elementary truths of human existence. End quote. Wow, what a great summary of the big picture view of this pandemic. Just excellent. I was shocked to learn that over this past weekend, our police in London, Ontario, have apparently already been out disciplining and fining people for not social distancing enough in public, whatever that might mean in practice. For individuals, and get this, the fines begin at a minimum of $750 to a maximum of $100,000 plus a year in jail. Like, are you effing kidding me? Whoever came up with that one is the person who should be fined $100,000 plus given a year in jail. Meanwhile, all of our politicians are patting themselves on the back for this outrageous act of fascism. And apparently this fascism appears to be a universal symptom of the COVID-19 shutdown, as we hear from Carl Benjamin's April 5th account of what's been happening in Britain, where apparently the lawmakers have banned sunbathing in the park. Sunbathing is against the rules, folks. According to the government and the local councils, 
Despite clear advice, over 3,000 people spent today in Brockwell Park, many of them sunbathing or in large groups. This is unacceptable. <laughs> Unfortunately, the actions of minority means that, following police advice, Brockwell Park will be closed tomorrow. Hashtag stay home. But people are still social distancing, as this picture of the park and the people in it show. How they worked out the 3,000, I don't know. How they worked out that these people were too close, I don't know. I mean, you've got police driving through uh, the, you know, various Peckham Rye Park, yelling, no sunbathing, exercise only. <laughs> what? But they just sat there. That's not spreading the coronavirus, is it? Well, it's mad. It's absolutely mad. I mean, where's the evidence that anyone has caught the coronavirus from this? But, like, the police are, like, disappointed after people have been sunbathing on the hill. Oh, okay, fine. You can be disappointed. But at the end of the day, look, they're all distant from one another. Apart from those who are in families who are sat together. It's just ridiculous. This is a ridiculous annoyance that people are, are taking sensible local actions. And say, oh, you can't sit in the field, you've got to keep exercising. Why? What difference does it make? What they're actually doing as long as they're not near each other. <laughs> exercise out of the home could be banned if people flat the rules. Fuck you you man i would rather catch the fucking disease than be tyrannized by my government all right i would rather have the disease than have you tell me i can't leave my fucking house that's my problem i'm really getting sick of this kind of crackdown the government, oh, like, we've got to we've got to bring out the bring out the big guns now we've got to really really show people they have to do exactly as we say no fuck off fuck off i'm not i'm sick of this right Look at this. Matt Hancock told Andrew Marr that the government would take action if further measures are needed to bring the coronavirus under control. You aren't in control of this, all right? That's the first thing you have to understand. You are not in control of how viruses spread. That's just life, unfortunately. And it's just this, it's just something that happens, okay? It's something that happens. We are doing our best, but you can't expect people to just be like, right, okay, just stay in the house at all times for fear of coming within X amount of feet of someone who might have a disease. It's unworkable. That can't work. The latest death toll is 4,313, but that's not necessarily the death toll from the virus, is it? It's people who have just been um, tested for the virus. So, I mean, they may have had, like, and there have been plenty of these examples. Dave Cullen and Matt Christiansen have done some great videos on this saying, look, there are people who, who have died, and this is what Italy's, uh, this is what Italy's death toll has registered so high about. They were like, well, 99% of our, our deaths have been people who have not actually died of the virus but died with the virus and have had some condition that they have died from because people die unfortunately and i really wonder if the same thing is true in this country if you don't want us to have to take the step to ban exercise in all forms outside your home you've got to follow the rules fuck off matt fuck off you do not get to confine everyone to their homes just because you're afraid and i think this is all about people being afraid yeah, it's rough when people get sick it's rough that, they, that, that it could kill you it's rough. It's tough stuff. It sucks. But you can't just imprison people. I'm really sick of it. I'm really sick of this. The, the more people stay at home, the less will virus will spread. Well, there we go. You know, I guess I'll take that risk. You know, I'll make my own decisions, thank you very much. And I'll be the one who bears the consequences. Sussex police said two people have been summoned to attend court after having a barbecue on Hove Beach. Oh, God. 
primary spreaders of, of coronavirus right there people having a barbecue on the beach are they even sick are they carriers <laughs> it doesn't matter they've been summoned to attend court it doesn't matter like <laughs> just it's wild and the thing is it's, it's, it's mental everywhere like this is the thing in America uh, a teenager was allegedly threatened with jail after posting about COVID-19 on social media the sheriff's deputy ordered her to delete the post or was threatened with jail you can't do that especially not in America where you've got First Amendment but Seattle police chief tells people to call 911 if they hear racist name calling or what in America you're allowed to call people racist names believe it or not <laughs> it's mad, isn't it? It's absolutely mad how far this is going. Like Google's launching a tool that will publicly track people's movements, allowing health officials to check whether their communities are abiding by social distancing measures. Man, I tell you what, I'm I'm starting to think that the cure is way worse than disease at this point. You know, if we've had like what eighty thousand cases and four thousand people have died, then the mortality rate of this disease is not very high. So lo- most people don't die of it. So is this justified? Is bringing in Orwell's nightmare justified because some people have died from a disease? People die from disease all the time. Like, every year, thousands of people die from the flu, but we don't do this. How is this different, really? This is different because people are panicking about it. They're allowing it to get inside their heads. They allow it to destroy their way of life. Then what, what, are, we, what are we doing? So far, the public had considered the government to have been doing a fairly good job of this, if polling is in any way accurate, and I think this is going to be where they start losing people, because they're certainly starting to lose me on this. Not everyone is infected. Not every time someone goes out of the house, you know, a, a massive pandemic is caused. You can't just expect people to be prisoners to some virus. It's not going to happen. Especially given how the virus is not as deadly as you're making out it's not as bad as you're saying and i know that one day i'll probably die of it and go well there we go i was one of those people but that doesn't change the fact that most people are recovering most people are not dying from this you're listening to just right broadcasting around the world and online by the way the world health organization made a startling announcement earlier this week stating that it has been discovered that the coronavirus has been found to be spreading primarily among families and among family members they even went so far as to suggest that authorities should be empowered to enter private homes and remove the children or elderly from the family unit dr michael ryan executive director of the world health organization's health emergencies program announced that in response to the spread of the virus, authorities may have to enter homes and remove family members. Quote, transmission has been taken off the streets and pushed back into family units. Now we need to go and look in families to find those people who may be sick and remove them and isolate them in a safe and dignified manner, end quote. Really? Can you imagine that? The media did not consider this alarming. Unbelievable. Got this tweet from Paul McKeever quoting a healthcare spokesperson. Quote, Our critical care colleagues are of the strong opinion that ventilator treatment will not make a survival difference to patients who are frail, and ventilator support is very unlikely to be offered, end quote, to which he added, but we're shutting down the economy in the name of spreading demand for ventilators. Well, that was an interesting observation, particularly in light of what I received from Anon, my contact on the front lines of the ICU and emergency department in an Ontario hospital, how ventilators kill COVID patients. Haven't heard that one yet, have you? Quote, From the beginning, I said this panic over ventilators 
and the meme that they save lives was part of the hysterical madness going on. Turns out I was right. And it's not merely that ventilators protract death, but they actively kill the COVID-19 patient. This is no surprise to me as a veteran of the ICU where I know the baseline mortality rates are poor anyway, with the ventilated patient suffering from multiple chronic comorbidities. Now that non-medical equipment manufacturers have had guns pointed at them to make ventilators, more untold quantities of our dissolving capital structures are going to be sunk into futile production of equipment in order to serve a futile purpose. Intervention begets intervention. The same is true in medicine as in economics. The action of sticking a breathing tube down someone's throat and putting them on a ventilator is not a simple life-saving act. It sets in motion a cascade of further invasive interventions. Intubation and ventilation can save lives, but mostly under strictly delimited clinical conditions. In the case of COVID-19, acute respiratory distress syndrome, the lungs react to the virus with such an overwhelming inflammatory cascade that the normally pliable spongy lung tissue becomes stiff, dense, filled with fluid, and loses its normal compliance. The act of sticking a breathing tube down their throat and putting them on a vent means that the patient needs to be sedated. Sedation causes normal airway protection and hemodynamic stability to collapse. This requires the use of many dangerous drugs and mechanisms of support. Now a bunch of invasive monitoring tubes and lines need to be stuck in the patient, further exasperating mortality and morbidity risk. Once you stuck the tube and placed them on a vent, now the vent starts pushing air into the lungs, which causes barotrauma, further exasperating the lung failure and the development of fibrotic lung tissue and worsening inflammation as the patient circles the drain. If the patient survives this process, the virus and ventilator cause lung damage along with the fact that the diaphragm, which is a skeletal muscle, often wastes away after merely a day or two of ventilation, resulting in catastrophic inability to rebuild its strength in order to overcome the airspace and tissue compliance issues in the now damaged lungs. It goes on and on until a week later we pull the plug, and although the patient died by natural means, possibly exasperated by medical intervention, the media screams, doctors are forced to decide who lives and who dies. The approach to treating patients who show up with an extremely low oxygen is to simply provide them with high flow oxygen and simply tolerate that on the monitor. Another simple intervention that shows great efficacy is to basically make the patient lie on their stomach in a prone position. The act of lying on the stomach allows gravity to pull the fluid away from the bases and back of the lungs and allows that huge surface area of lung tissue on our back to benefit from improved ventilation capacity until the clinical conditions improve. The idea of tolerating a low oxygen measurement instead of jumping to intubation and ventilation highlights a theme in the methodology of medicine that I have already raised. So often in medicine, clinicians focus on specific measurements and metrics as a basis for intervention. In the case of public health, you have this entire focus on specific measurements such as number of COVID cases or number of COVID deaths. According to them, this means a drastic intervention is required, such as universal lockdown. Similarly, the critical care or emergency clinician focuses on specific measurements such as low blood oxygen, and this leads to the panicked response of stick on a vent. In both cases, public health and critical care, the haste toward intervention often proves to be worse than the disease. End quote. 
becoming a recurring theme, isn't it? And here's Laura Ingraham from her excellent and concise April 2nd broadcast on Fox News. Finally, finally, the New York Times, they saw the light today. All right, here's the headline. Malaria drug helps virus patients improve in small study. Well, the study, conducted by Chinese researchers, found that cough, fever, and pneumonia went away faster, and the disease seemed less likely to turn severe in people who received hydroxychloroquine than in a comparison group not given the drug. And this was the same paper, the newspaper, by the way, who just a few days earlier published this gem of an op-ed. No, these medicines cannot cure coronavirus. Well, similar dismissive stories were posted by the know-nothings at Vanity Fair and the Washington Post. Now, these poltroons obviously don't even know that physicians here and abroad are right now, tonight, treating COVID patients with hydroxy, sometimes adding azithromycin. And by the way, they're oftentimes successfully getting outcomes for their patients. Again, we're going to talk to one of those infectious disease docs in just a moment. And next, more on that ongoing debate about whether the virus's lethality, the mortality rate, is being overstated or misunderstood. Now remember, as I told you last night, we don't yet have an accurate picture of who has already been infected. Now, why is this? We've done all this testing, we got more testing than ever. Well, it's because many Americans have already had the uh, COVID infection and recovered, or in, in many of those, well, of course, they were never tested. And many also had no symptoms at all, and they were infected. We took drastic mitigation actions anyway, though, because experts warned us that millions and millions could die. Who would ever want to even tolerate the thought of that? But Stanford's Dr. J. Bhattacharya, who thinks the models are off by many multiples, he spoke recently with Peter Robinson of the Hoover Institution Watch. I'm a little bit astounded, maybe, unless you tell me I shouldn't be, that they've shut down the economy without knowing quite what they're doing. People plug the, the worst case into, those, into their models. They project forward and say two to four million deaths. Newspapers pick up the two to four million deaths. Politicians have to respond. Um, and the scientific basis for that projection is, is completely, there's, there isn't, there's, there's no study underlying that scientific projection in the sense of that number, that denominator of that number doesn't exist. So how do we get a more accurate denominator? If you want to know in the population how many people have had it and recovered from it, you want to know the denominator, you have to have the antibody test. You need both in the denominator. And so with the, with that, with the, with the antibody test, you can get the denominator for the population fatality rate, for the, anything at the population level. Um, it's only in the last week and some that that's, they become available. But today we got mixed messages from the Coronavirus Task Force about these antibodies testing. Antibody testing right now is not the first thing on our priority. It is very important ultimately to be able to get a feel for what the penetrance of the infection was in society for a number of reasons. You get a better feel of what the impact has been, but also you get a better feel of what the herd immunity would be. So I can foresee 
in the future that when we get the facility, which we'll have for sure, I mean, ultimately, you can get a test that could do this reasonably easy, and do the kind of what we call zero-surveillance study. But right now, that's not our immediate problem. Well, wait, wait. At some level, and I've talked to the top scientists who are looking at this as well, at some level, that doesn't make sense. Because we have problems beyond the current infection rate. We have millions of people out of work. And we also have vulnerable healthcare workers. So we need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. On the importance of fast-tracking these antibodies tests, Dr. Burks gets it. I think we owe it to the frontline health care providers, not only to provide them RNA tests, but many of them have been on the front line now for four weeks, may have become exposed. We now know they're asymptomatic. And I think really being able to tell them the peace of mind that would come from knowing you already were infected, you have antibody, you're safe from reinfection 99.9% .9 of the time. Universities can do that by Friday. So I'm putting that challenge out to them. We're not waiting. We're asking for help now. Yes, that was music to the ears of so many who've been examining the true models here and doing that long-term and short-term look at the true numbers, that denominator. How many were really infected and what is the mortality rate? Understanding every life is precious. Now, the antibodies test, as Dr. Burke said, it's easy, it's fast, and it's absolutely critical to understanding the true severity and reach of the virus. And then that informs what the best action is to take to, in response to the virus. So if we can quickly determine a true infection rate, and we determine that the in, and true infection rate is actually far higher than we originally thought, now this sounds weird, but that's in a way actually good news because it means more Americans now have immunity to the virus. This could get Americans out of their home confinement a lot sooner. They won't infect anyone once they're in the workplace and they won't get it again. Now, as awful as the 4,700 plus COVID deaths are in this country, and that's an awful number, we're only beginning to see the destruction caused, of course, by crashing our economy as well. The universal quarantine, or essentially that's what we have, uh, is incredibly costly. It costly to, and uh, people have characterized it as costly to the economy, and so, and so and you get accused of being crass because you're compar you know, comparing dollars with people's lives, right? That's, yes, yes. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm actually kind of sympathetic to that, but actually it's not just dollars to lives. It's, do it's, 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 uh, it's lives to lives, right? A global economic collapse will cost lives of, of I believe millions of people. And not just in the United States, I mean worldwide. The president, he sees it too. We did the right thing and we did it early. We did it early and we stopped other people from coming into our country early. But, but no, that's a cost. You'll have domestic violence, you'll have violence, you'll have suicide, you'll have drug addiction. A, a lot of people are going to be lost. We want to get this open as soon as we can. I mean, I'll be the happiest person. So will you, everyone in this room. Happy when we get the word that this is the time. Now, it's always the right time to get better data. That means we need the true infection rate. We want to protect the lives of the vulnerable Americans out there. Meanwhile, what about our civil liberties? We'll, you know, we're going to get our freedom back when this is all over, right? 
This is going to be transformative. We're never going to be the same again. The fear that we have, the anxiety that we have, that's not just going to go away. Uh, when do we get back to normal? I don't think we get back to normal. I think we get back or we, we, we get to a new normal. Wait, 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 wait. And what new normal is that? The old normal was when your kids actually went to school. You could go to work, you could go to church if you wanted, and maybe a restaurant or watch a sporting event or play sports with your friends. You traveled anywhere and whenever you damn well please, without government tracking or police questioning you. That was the old normal. So if the new normal means something innocuous, like we won't buy drugs from China, well, that's great. That's a good new normal. And if it means that we stay home when we're sick and we wash our hands more, fantastic. We all want that. But if the new normal that Cuomo's talking about means abandoning the life we loved before the coronavirus or using this crisis, as some seem to be doing, as a vehicle for advancing a left-wing freedom-killing agenda, well, count us out. Okay, five-card draw poker. You in Cincinnati? Of course he's in. Come on, Rimmer. Deal the cards. Matchsticks, nothing more. If you think you're winning my back issues of Morris Dancer Monthly, you've got another thing coming. <laughs> Here we go. One, two, three, four, five. Let's see what we got. Where are our cards? You ain't getting any. <laughs> Without cards, we can't win. Exactly. <laughs> what kind of game is that? A good game. <laughs> A game I'm gonna win. When it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic, the governments of the world have essentially forced us to play a game of cards in which we don't get any cards dealt to us while the government becomes the ultimate and only player in the game rather than the referee. The rest of us are just observers in this whole affair. Government gets all the cards, cards that cannot be trumped in any given card game, and they come in the form of circular logic or unprovable arguments used to justify the shutdown. For example, no matter how high the long-anticipated curve gets, and no matter if nothing happens at all, politicians and their governments can always argue that it would have been worse if the actions they took were not taken. And so they're in a win-win logic situation. And while there is a certain logic in concluding that isolation may prevent a particular viral infection from happening during that isolation period, that's a circular argument that tells us nothing. It's a statement of faith. And it might not even be true, particularly when you choose to include all of the effects on everyone that were imposed on them by a police state shutdown. And of course, that's the very thing that Doug Ford, that was the stunt he pulled, there's the headline on the front page of the London Free Press last week Friday, Grim Projections. If we stay the course, between 3,000 and 15,000 could die in Ontario. If we had done nothing, the death toll would have reached 100,000. Stay home. End quote. Well, you know, there is that circular argument. Then there's, the more people who stay home, the less the virus will spread. 
Well, this might not be true if the World Health Organization's announcement that the family unit is where the spread is occurring is true. But it sure does explain why the major media hasn't brought this to the public's attention. It would just neutralize this particular card, wouldn't it? And remember what Michael Osterholm said in the Joe Rogan audio bite we played a couple of weeks ago. Trying to stop an influenza is like trying to stop the wind. Then there's the argument about pre-symptomatic transmission and asymptomatic transmission, which means you might have it and not have any symptoms yet. You might have it and never get any symptoms, but it makes everyone a potential spreader, and therefore this justifies the state-imposed shutdown of the entire economy. Anything goes. Current evidence doesn't matter. It's this future projection that counts. That's another one of those circular logic situations. First, even if statistically true, the spread relates only to the transmission of the virus itself and not to the condition that becomes COVID-19 disease. That only happens to a certain percentage of the population, one that, even when sick, usually recovers. Then there's, of course, the altruistic, we're doing this to save lives. And if they're into saving lives, then explain this one to me. And this is from the Toronto Star of March 28th. Ontario doctors told to stop prescribing unproven drug combination touted by Donald Trump. And that was written by Ranim Alazi. And I quote, Last week, U.S. President Donald Trump called the anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine a game-changer in fighting the new coronavirus. But medical associations say it is not evidence-based. The side effects of using both medications unchecked could also have adverse effects, including cardiac arrhythmias, which can be especially dangerous for patients with chronic medical conditions, such as hepatic disease or renal failure, end quote. Now, isn't that the responsibility of the doctors prescribing the drugs? Shouldn't they know that? And then not prescribe them if they think the risk is too great? And to say that the drug is not evidence-based, well, that's simply not true. Evidence abounds. And it's all irrelevant anyway. If you're in a position of losing your life to a virus and your own health care providers will not let you use a promising and demonstrated treatment, then obviously they're not concerned about saving lives. And back to the article, quote, The widespread prescriptions and dispensing of the drugs has created a shortage across Canada of hydroxychloroquine sulfate and even an outage in some brands. This could lead to serious challenges for long-term treatment and care of rheumatoid arthritis and lupus patients, end quote. Well, there we get the truth, don't we? Once again, our healthcare system is shown to be suffering the plague of shortages and the practice of rationing. And the medical associations who are issuing this order are using some kind of medical rationale all to cover up the drug supply shortage. They don't want to admit that by rationing they're choosing who lives and who dies. And by arguing that the chloroquine drugs could have adverse effects, they're able to virtue signal how they really want to save lives. You see how that twists around? What's truly frightening to me is the degree of delight that many of those in power are exhibiting with regard to the shutdown and keeping it going for as long as possible. The big question now is, how and when will the shutdown be shut off? How can we possibly recover from this government-created disaster? You can't just switch the economy on and off as if it were some kind of mechanical device. But fortunately, we can do that with our show, which now must be switched off for another week to be switched back on upon our return 
at or near the end of this second critical shutdown period. So be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be it appears that the machines have been disrupted by the virus, and they hold all the cards here. It also appears he who manages the machines controls the ship.